Hello, friends. It's Jim Nansen. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to Beyond the Clubhouse, a podcast hosted by my friend Garrett Johnston. He is a testament to one of the great things about this sport, the friendships that come from playing or even just talking about the game. And you're going to meet some of the characters that Garrett has gotten to know from this past decade plus that he's been covering the sport. You're going to hear from players, caddies, members of the media. You're going to get the storytelling, the golf news, the player swing tips, and a whole lot of laughs. It's coming your way with this edition of Beyond the Clubhouse. Here's Garrett. All right, Jim Nance, thanks for the intro. I always appreciate it. And I've got a really good guest lined up for you this week. Randall Chambly, TV analyst for the Golf Channel, has been doing this for 16 years. Listen, love him or hate him, most people have an opinion on him. I get it. And he's going to give us all kinds of opinions when it comes to the top players in the world. John Rahm, of course, getting to number one. So some insights on that. What's his ceiling? What does that look like? And how does he compare to other young players? Justin Thomas, Bryson DeChambeau. Where between those three, what player is going to end up with the most majors? We get to that. Tiger Woods' outlook on winning a major soon, whether that's possible or not in his opinion, and how many Tiger has left in the tank. Roy McIlroy looking ahead to the Masters. Can he get the career grand slam? What will that look like if he doesn't from Brandel's outlook? Plenty of really good stuff on this pod for you. We'll get straight to it. Brandel Chambly from the Golf Channel. Well, welcome into this edition of Beyond the Clubhouse. This week, I'm very pumped up. we got my good friend, Randall Chambly, who we go back about 10 years. I want to say the 2010 PGA Championship. I remember seeing you in the media center, Brandall, uh, spiking all kinds of Dr. Pepper, getting ready for that major. You were uh, loaded up on Dr. Pepper, I remember. Texan coming out in me. <laughs> yes. But hey, how are you doing today? Uh, doing great, thanks. Uh, nice to join you, um, and uh, congrats on uh, all you're doing in the game of golf. It's uh, it's been nice following you over the years. But uh, just got off the telecast, uh, crazy end to the memorial. John Rom looked like he won by five, and then was assessed this uh, bizarre penalty on the 16th hole after he'd hold out. So a little bit of controversy, a little bit of a roller coaster ride. Uh, it's been a long day, though. I mean. Uh, Seems like these events, I mean, every one of them kind of feels like a major championship right now uh, with the great fields and plenty to talk about. Well, I like that you mentioned major championships because we have a lot coming up here just in the next couple months. The PGA Championship, anybody, a couple group of players that really stick out to you as we look to Harding Park? I know Tigers won there in the WGC 2005. Rory was the other player that won 2015 in the WGC match play, beat Gary Woodland in the final. Any players really sticking out at the moment to you? Well, look, uh, you know, it has a relatively short history, recent history on the PGA Tour, but what it has is pretty strong evidence that uh, power players and top-tier players uh, does a pretty good job at weeding them out. Obviously, Tiger Woods and John Daly were in a playoff there. Uh, Rory won the match play there. They had a Charles Schwab Cup event there, I believe, on the PGA Tour champions, and Fred Couples won there. So, you know, you, you can start to get the pecking order that you're looking at. And even though Rory wouldn't have had his best event at the Memorial, he did um, – he did drive the ball beautifully, he finished third in driving accuracy. He struggled a little bit here or there with um, the rest of his game. But, uh, but you know, you, you start to look at the, the best drivers of the golf ball, the longest hitters. Um, given the nature of those bumpy, poetic greens, 
going to be important to be on the right side of the hole and it's going to be important to have you know sort of low proximity numbers so you know you, you it's going to be skewed i think towards longer hitters and uh, and the drivers that uh, can find the fairway and that that's certainly that's certainly rory and um you know anymore it's um you know, you get nostalgic and you pull for Tiger Woods, but uh, just watching him at Memorial um, and knowing that it's going to be kind of cold in San Francisco, which is not the best of scenarios for uh, sort of a wobbly back, um, you're going to have to start looking at the better players, uh, longer hitters. Um, John Rahm, who just ascended number one in the world, just drove it beautifully. So those two certainly come to mind. Well, you did mention John Rahm there and number one in the world, what do you see him accomplishing the next 20 years? You did give kind of a cautionary, hey, he needs to hit more fairways this week. You did mention that. But this is a player that has shown some pretty good ability to dominate when he does get in, in, in the, the, as a front runner. But what do you see expect out of his career at this point? Well, you know, I mean, great things have been predicted of him. Phil Mickelson uh, played with him when he was still in college. And on the way – back to his house he called a couple of different manufacturers and said if you're not looking at this guy you are making a mistake he's already one of the best players in the world I think he said he's already a top 10 player in the world uh, and then the very you know the first time we saw him on the PGA Tour was the Waste Management Phoenix Open and he finished fifth so you know when you see somebody come out with that kind of uh, no need for uh you know, sort of time spent learning the ropes, uh, hit the ground running. It just doesn't happen very often. You know, I mean, he's now the fourth youngest player to number one. So uh, a long career, just like Justin Thomas. Uh, you know, look, Jordan Spieth got to number one at a very young age, and that's why we were making the analogy. Um, he got to number one at 22 years of age, just like, you know, Tiger Woods got there at 21, so early 20s. So we were – we were always talking about Jordan Spieth with the caveat that he didn't have great length. Uh, and it's, it's hard for anybody in this era with great length to dominate and his game has fallen off. When you look at Rom, he's got the great length. He drives it beautifully. Marvelous iron player. He led the field in strokes gain around the green this week at uh, Memorial. So he, he's kind of got it all and he's only going to get more poise. He certainly needs that. And he certainly needs, you know, I, I think a, a, a better battle plan when he's playing golf courses. He's talented enough that he's going to get there. He's going to get more poise. And, uh, you know, I think he'll quit making poor decisions on Sundays. I mean, even though he won the day, he made, you know, some pretty poor decisions going at the at 12, going at the whole location at 16, even though he said he, you know, he said he didn't, didn't plan on hitting it there to make that mistake left of 16. It's similar to the mistake he made at the farmer's, on the third hole on Sunday with the lead on three, a double similar three, yep. he made on the third hole at the players championship on Sunday when he hit it in the one place you couldn't. The par five. Plays, yep. Right. So these are, these are plays that, you know, he'll, he'll learn from those and he'll get better and better. But uh, from a talent perspective, yeah, I mean, he's, he's in that Dustin Johnson, Rory McIlroy, uh, echelon. It's a pretty uh, good echelon to be at. Uh, there is a Twitter question from a former colleague of yours uh, and a friend of mine, uh, at Vince Cellini. You know, Vince, uh, he said. Vince Cellini, I, I, <laughs> I say all the time. 
He was one of the best, if not the best, I've ever worked with. He's a talented broadcaster. Good gracious, and funny as hell. <laughs> he is, yeah. He was. I, I met him at 2010 Pebble Beach event. I worked with him uh, doing some video hits. I was doing camera for him. So, uh, really good guy. Always a great mentor for me. He said he would like to hear your perspective on emotional players and fiery guys and why some channel it like Sevy and Rom, John Rom, and some don't. Plus, why trying to tone them down may not be a good idea. Well, you know, you know, look, I mean, you could say Tiger was fiery, but Tiger moved very slow. Um, and I made this analogy the other day. I mean, it seems like the greatest of athletes move slow. Uh, Bjorn Borg famously had a resting heart rate of 35. Ben Hogan was very methodical. Jack Nicklaus, very methodical. Tiger Woods, you know, I don't recall ever watching anybody walk slower to the first tee than Tiger Woods. It's 2000 Open Championship as he was making his way to the first tee. I uh, was just listening to the telecast the other day and the broadcasters were talking about he was moving so slowly they thought he was injured. He wasn't, of course. It's just, um, you know, the ability to slow things down. There's been a few sort of uh, – frantic and jumpy uh big stars lee trevino certainly was but generally speaking uh the greatest players greatest athletes michael jordan moved slow um, they're just blessed with that sort of cadence and their walk and their demeanor they slow things down uh, rom is jumpy you know he's fiery so he's going to make some mistakes he's going to go with pins he shouldn't he's going to have outbursts on the golf course you know he's a little bit like setting um, you know, Seve was, it's great to watch. It's, it's, you know, it's great theater. Um, but you know, it, you know, it doesn't necessarily help them get every single drop out of their talent. Um, so, uh, it's good for the game. It certainly is, but it's not necessarily great for the player. I'd argue. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it just really depends on what he's, how he's going to deal with, with the, some of those mannerisms and, and obviously in, in the heat of battle. Rom, we mentioned JT earlier, Justin Thomas and Bryson DeChambeau, three real hot, solid players, younger players. Assuming health, who wins more majors of those three? Good question. Um, you know, it'll be between Rom and Thomas. Um, you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm inclined to go, that's a really good question. And it, it, this could be a Ernie Els, Phil Mickelson question from the early nineties. You know, I remember watching both of them come out in 1992. Um, you know, I was at the international and I saw Ernie on the range. I didn't know who he was, but I stopped in my tracks. I was like, good Lord almighty, where does talent like that come from? And I had played in Tucson when Phil won as an amateur. So if someone would ask me who was going to win the most majors, I would have probably then been tongue-tied to tell you because they were both colossal talents. And, of course, you know, Phil ended up winning five. You know, it's unlikely he'll win another one, and Ernie ended up winning four. Um, Phil had the longer golf swing, and I think that mattered more, the longevity. Justin Thomas has a longer golf swing uh, than John Rahm. Generally speaking, quick, short golf swings do not age very well. So I would go with Justin Thomas. Um, Justin Thomas is better out of the rough, which you're, you're, you're going to see more of that in major championships. Hits the ball higher. 
um, you know, that is a, a, a huge benefit in major championships. So, you know, I think uh, John Rahm and, and Justin Thomas of those three will, will have the best run, but I think Justin Thomas will have the longer career and win more major championships. Well, now, why Bryson? Why would he not be uh, right there with those other two? Well, Bryson's yet to finish better than 15th in a major championship. You know, he's, uh, I don't think he's finished any better than 20th in the Players' Championship. He's not played well in a WGC event. Um, you know, Bryson is one of those guys that runs, runs pretty hot uh, as well. And as we've seen, he's, he's vastly improved his driving. But he has to vastly improve his iron play. Um, you know, he won at the Rocket Mortgage with the best putting week of his life. His driving got all the attention, but the putting was why he won there. Uh, the larger part, I should say, of why he won there. So, you know, I, I, I don't know that Bryson has the ideal temperament. Um, um, you know, we'll see. You know, we'll, we'll see. Uh, you know, he has a chance to change the game. And I think, you know, to some extent, you know, there's already players looking at him and thinking, you know, maybe I'll, you know, try to put on a few pounds or maybe I'll trace his movement patterns and try to pick up some yardage. But to really change the game, um, he's going to have to play better in major championships. And to do that, look, when he won Rocket Mortgage, 72 approaches, he was negative in 35 of those approaches. Negative strokes gained in 35 of those approaches. You know, I mean, driving gets you a long way towards your goal, but the way to separate yourself quicker is with great iron shots. And, you know, if you're hitting poor iron shots, you, you know, hits a lot of pulls and, you know, you pull a, a short iron, you're going to end up long, you're going to end up either in the rough or putting straight downhill. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's got some things to work out uh, to figure out his major championship game. Right. Well, we've talked here about driving, about accuracy, some of these top players in the world. You put out a pretty interesting tweet. Uh, I believe it was yesterday, as I'm looking on Twitter here. Uh, you had mentioned that distance hardly matters, distance and accuracy does. And a, a really cool kind of back and forth with the guys that know laying up, where they had mentioned, you know, that the argument is right now the players are hitting it far and they're also hitting it straight. It's kind of what, what no laying up's argument was. And you're, they, they said they were never hit it straighter. Uh, <laughs> That's right, never hit it straighter. And you're saying that uh, tour players have never been more inaccurate. Which is wrong. And the comeback from uh, no laying up was that longer drives are naturally going to lead to more missed fairways, which doesn't equal inaccuracy no, they, versus they dispersion patterns. So what, what, what's the solution there? What, what's your yeah. response? I think they were saying it was more due to dispersion. And certainly yes. dispersion patterns matter. Patterns, yeah. But it, it, it also matters how players are hitting the ball along. They're hanging back more. Uh, and they're rotating and extending more. Now, the rub in this game is to hit it long and straight. That's the hardest thing to do is hit it long and straight. And the reason I I think that uh, major championships outside of the Masters should have thicker rough, uh, and I never argue for narrower fairways. I think you should, you know, math is involved here. You, you get the proper dispersion rate for how far they're hitting it. You widen the fairways, okay? I get, you know, I it's easy to be misinterpreted on this. I never talk about narrowing the fairways. I talk about widening them for dispersion rates, but then thickening the rough. Right now, the cost of missing a fairway is 0.3 shots. It should be closer to 0.5 shots so that the players that are hitting it um, 
hanging back, it's not just dispersion rates. It's, a, it's the way they're swinging. They're hitting up on it, and they're hanging back, and they're rotating, and they're extending. So they've never been more in, inaccurate than they are right now. So no laying up, the guys were wrong. Um, uh, and if you had thicker rope, it would encourage players to do two things. To hit it far, you got to get behind it, certainly. But you do have to cover it a little bit more to hit it straight. You can't uh, necessarily hit it straight, hanging back and rotating. You need to cover it. The hardest thing to do in golf is hit it long and straight. Jack did it, um, but Jack got behind it, and then he covered it. Um, Tiger Woods in 2000 did that as well. So you would encourage players to learn to hit it not just long, but also straight. You would also encourage players to go to softer golf balls so that they could curve it more. Um, that The origin of that, if you go back to 2000, so we're talking about 21 years, right on 21 years now, and you look at the, per, the player because I have seen a buffet, a plethora of <laughs> tweets from people saying, Bryson DeChambeau is ruining the game. Bryson DeChambeau is leading driving distance. He did win an event this year. But that is very rare that the leader in driving distance wins an event. In 20, almost 21 years, the leader in driving distance for the year combined, all of them have won just eight times, just eight. Uh, because typically the, the guy who's hitting it the farthest uh, the, the farthest is is doing exactly what I described. Typically, they're, they're too far behind the ball and they're focusing too much on driving distance and not enough on accuracy. Eight times, okay, that's roughly 500 events that they've played and they won eight times. So, you know, right around a one and a half, uh, one, one and a half uh, percentage points, um, that's not going to get you in the Hall of Fame. Uh, conversely, from 2000 to 2003, the metric to uh, – decide who the best driver was, was total driving, a combo stat, driving and accuracy. Um, Tiger led that in 2000. Sergio led it in 2001. Duvall led it in 1999. From 2000 to 2003, they won 13 major championships. And then in 2004, strokes gain off the tee became the new metric. 37 majors have been won, or 37 uh, tour events have been won by players who've led the strokes gain off the tee from 2004 to now. So it's clear that's 49 to 8. 49 to 8. So it's not about just distance. It's about distance and accuracy. But beyond that, it is about, and if, you, if you're the person that's covering the ball, then you, you can have a strategy because you know where the ball's going. So nerve matters, judgment matters, skill matters, strategy matters. And all these things matter more than driving distance. If the game were really bomb and gouge, every time you played with a college kid who hit it 340, he'd go right to the tour. Long drive players, right to the tour. But you know what? They don't. I play with them. I play with tons of these college kids who hit 370. They don't make the tour. They don't get on the tour. And then when they do get on the tour, they don't win. They certainly don't win very often. Um, because Your point about the sprinters, yeah, about sprinting. This is their faster. Yeah. Well, of course, sprinters are fast. I mean, of course, of course, athletes are better. Can we just celebrate the fact that athletes are better and golfers are stronger and they understand where power comes from and also the benefit of power, but also the huge benefit in power and accuracy. And that's what's getting, um, I think, pushed to the side is that Bryson DeChambeau has figured out not how to hit it long, but long and straight. And right. that gets rewarded. Yes. Looking at players, now you've been at Golf Channel since 2004. Um, 
in your 16 years at Golf Channel, I know you've mentioned in the past, it's a, it's a famous quote, uh, getting the least out of the talent was Tiger because he left 10 majors on the table, 30 events. When you look at other players in your 16 years of covering this game that you've looked with all your legal pads and all the numbers I've seen at the Masters 2015, remember we were there at the media area and you showed me your legal pads and how you do the homework on, on these players. What other players come to mind as maybe leaving a little bit on the table in these 16 years of you covering? Yeah, you know, I mean, Sergio Garcia, certainly. I mean, uh, terrible, terrible, but, you know, a, a poor closure rate for somebody who hits the balls as good as he does. I believe his closure rate's 4 of 14, 54-hole closure rate. The lead is one of the worst for a good player. Six-shot lead at Wells Fargo in 2005. Yeah. I let that go away. Well, you know, um, yes, he had a six-shot lead. He's only one of six players to ever lose a six-shot lead. Um, Technically lost by six shots. It was Harrington that overcame him for that major when 07 opened, but it was Harrington was six back to get him. I know Stricker was three back, and that was technically what Sergio's lead was, but still a guy from the back of the pack did get did get Sergio yeah, there I mean, at I mean, 07 open. That certainly comes to mind. Um, you know, I mean, I, I'd say Sergio Garcia, um, you know, David Duvall, because of injuries, didn't get to extend his win streak. You know, and that's why I have, you know, I, when, I, when I see players go to the gym the way Dustin Johnson did, the way Brooks Koepka did, the way Rory McIlroy used to, and I, you know, I, 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 I look at the metamorphosis of their body, I, then I look at their, how they're moving in their golf swing, and then I look at their club head speed and their ball speed, and, you know, when they're in their prime of their career and it's going down and they're getting injured – you know, that's why I, that's why I say the things I say about ad admonishing them against spending too much time in the gym. I, 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 look, I think there is some utility in it if you think that you deserve to win. Um, so there's, you know, I, I think the utility then, there's a, there's a, like a sense of profundity then, like you feel like you deserve it. So, you know, that, that certainly impacts your confidence and your belief, but from a utility standpoint, I mean, Tiger Woods swung the club much, much faster uh, when he was sinewy. You know, I, I've said forever that he traded um, uh, speed for strength. And in the end, his body broke down. David Duvall went into the gym because he saw what Tiger was doing, and his body broke down. Dustin Johnson's body broke down. Now, he's trying to heal up. Brooks Kepka, as we speak, is hobbled. His body's breaking down from working out. Rory's body was breaking down. Jason Day is hobbled. He can barely move because he's been in the gym working out. Um, you know, I think you just have to be very careful about the way you work out, I think, um, and the way you train. And, and then I think, if, you know, I think the Day's Tour players are taking a page out of Rory's book and they're learning that rest because of the whoop that he's using. Rest is becoming in vogue as much as working out on the PGA tour. And I think that'll help prolong some careers, but uh, I don't you know. Jim, Jim Furyk didn't have a particularly good, uh, he had a run there where he lost nine 54 hole leads in a, in a row. Uh, I realized that Jim wasn't a power player as this era has become more about um, power and it's become more power prejudice. Um, but Jim was so close uh, to, to winning more than one major championship. Um, so not a great, closer um you know um going back a few more years you know i'm a huge fan of tom layman's as a person and his talent but 
you know, he, he wasn't a particularly good closer. He had a number of close calls in major championships, and you felt like he as good a ball striker as he was, and he's one of the best I've seen. Um, he could have eked out a few more major championships. Um, you know, Davis Love only won one major championship. Um, you know, I, I say it all the time. I mean, three of the most talented people I've ever seen play golf are Weisskopf, Couples, and, and Love, and they only won one major each. So winning majors is not a foregone conclusion. There's only four of them a year. and So much goes into it. And if you happen to be chronologically cursed, as, as Weisskopf was playing in the sort of the Jack Nicklaus era, the Tom Watson era, um, or uh, Phil Mickelson and Ernie Els and Vijay Singh were playing in the Tiger Woods era, it's hard to get your share of them if you're colossally talented. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, I, I, you know, Tiger Woods is, uh, is, you know, nearing the end of his career and the, and the competitive landscape is wide open right now. So uh, it should be, should be a lot of fun watching these young kids get after it for the next 10 years. What's well, interesting that you say that, because I remember it was two years ago when you were mentioning um, Bryson had just won in Vegas. It was 2018, and you had talked about there's four players who have been dominant world number ones, right? Arnold, Jack, Watson, and Tiger. Looking ahead, I know we've kind of talked about some top players right now, but is there a guy, it's a, it's a landscape as you call it, but is there a guy or two that you're really like, hey, this, this has potential to be a fifth in, in history? Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I lean towards Rory of all of them because he has the longest swing and the best driver, uh, potential to be the best iron player. You know, he has that sort of potential. I lean towards Rory. Um, but the fact is a dominant number one, just don't come along very often. More often there's parody at the top. You know, it's, you know, Hogan was, was dominant. Um, Jack Nicholas was dominant. I think you could literally say, you know, for 15, 20 years, he was, he was dominant um, for a very, you know, a short period of time, say from 77 to 83, Tom Watson was dominant, you know, from 58 to 64, Arnold Palmer was dominant. And then Tiger Woods came along, you know, in the world rankings, I guess you could say Greg Norman was dominant, but not on the U S tour. He was, uh, you know, he 20, 20 wins and two major championships. I mean, that's great golf. It's Hall of Fame stuff, but it's not what you'd call dominance. Um, so it just doesn't, doesn't happen very often that a player comes along with the, you think about it, the requisite skills to get the number one and the, then the consistency to be dominant and then the ability to not be sated by victories, you know, to, to keep grinding with the same intensity that got you to number one you know, there's so many hurdles, priorities change, but you're also enticed into making all kinds of changes. You get time demands um, and those sorts of things. So it just doesn't happen that someone comes along very often. I think one of the most amazing things about Tiger Woods was that victories didn't satisfy. You know, he, he was oblivious. He showed up the very next week and just kept going. And he'd win by 11 and go to the next week, win by seven. Um, you know, that – that just doesn't happen very often. I, I loved uh, his stretch there in 06. Remember, he won was it six or seven tournaments in a row towards the end of 06. Bridgestone, PGA, it was just he was real un stuff. Un unbeatable from July of 06 to January of 2007. You think about that. Nobody beat him. 
And it didn't look like he was ever going to lose an event in 2008. So. And no surprise, we, we're probably not going to see that, as, as you say here, uh, coming ahead. But you did mention Rory. Rory at the Masters. You remember when he won, at, or excuse me, when he won the Open Championship 2014? Everybody in that winter time was thinking, okay, the cool in vogue thing to say is not this year, but next year he's going to complete the Grand Slam and win the Masters. Everybody, a lot of people were saying that, right? Okay, it's been another year, 17, 18, 19. It's starting to count up. He's in his 30s. Will he be a will it be a vast disappointment? Will it or will it be underachieving in some way for his talent if he doesn't win a green jacket? I wouldn't say that. Uh, you know, again, they're not there so many things have to happen to win a major championship, to win to win a golf tournament. You have to be on the top of your game, hope somebody else isn't on the top of their game, and you have to get good breaks and hope other people get bad breaks. Uh, and and unless you're winning by wide margins, uh, narrow margins of victory are more or less determined by luck. So everything's got to go his way. Uh, I'll say, you know, until the last year and a half or so, I never was of the opinion that Rory's game was suited for Augusta National. Um, and even though he had the ability to draw it around the corner uh, on – pivotal tee shots, you know, say two, um, 13. 13, they come to mind for sure. Um, you know, you, you may throw nine in there a little bit, I suppose, and 10, he can do it with a three wood, but, um, but really what you needed Augusta is the ability to hit high cuts off hook lies. So if you start to look at great, you know, Jack Nicholas, Ben Hogan, who, you know, they, they dominated at Augusta. And they have exactly the type of move I'm talking about, where it's a little bit over the top of the transition. And, and they hold it off. You know, you look at, you know, Hogan's finishing like this. Nicholas was finishing like this with his left arm. You think about Jordan Spieth finishing like this. Jordan Spieth looked like the perfect player because he could hit these high cuts off the ball above his feet. And that's so important on so many shots. to uh, Because if you're hitting, if you've got this sort of in-to-out shot and you've taken big divots um, with your irons, you're running into those banks, the face shuts down and you get these long left shots that, that end up in almost impossible spots. You got to be able to hit it high and you got to be able to hit cuts into those greens. Rory's made this change. You go back to 2019 players championship and you saw the tee shot that Rory hit at 18 and you've seen him hitting these iron shots. And I think this has a lot to do with him getting back to number one in the world. Um, and he's incorporated that move into his game, and it's it's beautiful to watch. And you know a lot of a lot of critiques about his short irons, but as we sit here right now, uh, last time I looked this week, he was leading the PGA Tour from 125 to 150. He was solid from 50 to 125. He was solid from 150 to 175. So his shorter clubs, he's made improvements on. So uh, you know I think Rory's made the necessary changes to give himself the best opportunity to win at Augusta National. I know a lot of our fans, our listeners here on my podcast and golf fans are big Tiger fans. You mentioned nostalgia with him when we look at Harding Park. And with him right now, what does he have to do to get to a major here? Because we've got three coming up. I, I know you said his iron play looked pretty good this week, but what does he have to do, one? And two, how many more majors are you expecting out of Tiger? You know, if, if health is it's going to hold up decently here. Well, as he says, it's day-to-day. -day. And, I mean, the first thing is, you know, 
as, as we looked at great players who, who managed to have great longevity in the game, we would hope that they'd show up at a major and have a renaissance with their game. Well, with Tiger, we hope he has a renaissance with his body, you know, because he's as banged up as any 44-year-old's ever been in the game of golf. So if he shows up and it just happens to be that, you know, he feels good that week, well, you know, that's, that's uh, prerequisite number one. And right now, prerequisite number two is that he's got to clean up his putting stroke. Uh, he's almost dead last on the PGA Tour in strokes game putting. He's almost dead last in three-putt percentage. He's had uh, he had four three-putts this week at Memorial, so that's 15 he's had on the year. Only played uh, – he played four events, something like um, and two of those were four putts. You know, you, you're talking about a guy that went, um, I think 2007, he went the whole year and he only had 23 putts. 2004, he went the whole year and he only had 23 putts. So not only is his speed off, but, you know, his ability to make, you know, the necessary four to eight footers is, is he's never been worse. And he's, he's gotten, you know, from 2013, obviously he didn't play much until 2018, 2018, 2019, 2020, he's gotten worse each year. And now he's almost the worst putter on the PGA Tour. So he's got to turn that around, obviously, um, to have any chance in a major championship. So that's prerequisite number two. And if he feels better, prerequisite number three is um, that he has a little bit more pop than he had this past week at Memorial. I mean, his ball speed had dropped down to 170, 168 miles an hour at Memorial. That would put him at about a hundredth in last year's statistics because for whatever reason, they're not keeping them this year on the PGA tour. But, uh, you know, that's all, that's scores of people that can hit the, hit the ball past him and have an advantage. But uh, the good news is, is his iron play is still there. And, and that is the larger piece of the puzzle, um, you know, um, beyond him needing to be able to move freely. And the, I think you asked how many more majors do you expect? Yeah. You know, you know, again, po post 44 victories for the best of players, they're just very rare. I mean, you look at Sam Snead is the exception. You know, he won seven times after turning 44. Jack only won twice after turning 44. Uh, ben Hogan only won once after turning 44. Gary Player never won after turning 44. You know, Arnold Palmer never won after turning 44. You think about Gary Player never winning on the PGA Tour after turning 44, this healthy, physical. He did win three times when he was 43, but he didn't win when he turned 44. Like the door slam, it's over. Okay? He's thanks. the mountain of fitness, yeah. Thanks for playing, the game's over. You're not winning again. Uh, so, so wins are, you know, the door begins to close at about 39, 40, and then it kind of closes, but then it slams shut. You know, Jack only won twice after turning uh, 44. He won his tournament at 44, and then obviously everybody knows he won the Masters when he was 46. So, you know, it, it, I suspect Tiger will be relevant in, in the odd major here and there, and if things go the right way, I wouldn't put it past him winning another one. Um, but a lot of things have to fall into place for that to happen. Yeah. I hear you on that, and this podcast, of course, is called Beyond the Clubhouse. To me, what that means is when you, once you're finished with rounds of golf or even playing career, in your case and, and many pros' case, it's the friendships, the lasting friendships we all have from the game. And I re I'll never forget you and I walking at the old course that Saturday morning. 
in 2015 and we were talking about the friendships and you had said, you know, Gary, that, that's, that's one of the best parts about this game are, are the friends that you make. And I know you mentioned Tom Lame and there's a lot of guys that you've been close with over the years, but, but how, how cool is the connection that we make with and, and these friendships we make? Yeah, at least, you know, from a, a peer standpoint, you know, you start in junior golf and you grow up with, you know, the guys that, you know, you make it to the tour with, you know, if you're lucky enough, you'll have a handful of guys that you grew up with, make it to the tour. In my particular case, you know, I think I was pretty blessed to have a number of really talented players that I grew up with uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, you know, Mark Brooks, you know, I grew up with playing junior golf with Mark Brooks. I grew up playing junior golf with Andrew McGee. I grew up playing junior golf with Scott Bergman. I grew up playing junior golf um, with Willie Wood. Uh, I grew up playing another fellow by the name of Danny Briggs got on the PGA tour, Andy Dillard. I grew up playing junior golf with, he got on the PGA tour. Um, you know, uh, Brian Henninger was a good friend of mine and, uh, you know, I played a lot of practice rounds with him, played a lot of practice rounds with Dillard Pruitt, who's now a rules official. Um, you know, so you, you grow up and you have these close ties and these close bonds. Um, and they, they, they never go away. I was actually texting Brooks, uh, when I was on the air just now, I just moved out. Arizona, I was telling him I got a bedroom for him. Come visit this winter. Uh, you know, uh, I love those guys. And, and then outside of your peers, you know, you, you know, golf attracts, you know, I think a lot of marvelous people, you know, who uh, are doing well in life and they love life. And it's a lifestyle. I think the game is a, is a lifestyle. And you get together and you, if you're lucky enough to, to be able to travel and play this game, you get to sit around and talk about the, you know, great golf courses, great architecture, see some great views, have some great laughs. I mean, I, I can't think of a better place to spend time with family and friends than five, six hours playing golf, warming up, you know, having a drink afterwards. Um, you know, it's, uh, if you're lucky enough to be in this game and be able to travel and play it, uh, it's, it's a gift that just never stops giving. Yeah. I would agree with that. Um, what about, I, I wanted to get briefly into some pre-round practice tips that you have as a former player. And of course you played on the champions tour a little bit last year. You had your wife, Bailey, uh, caddying for you there yeah. at the Shaw charity classic. Yeah. yeah. So, so you're still competitive at times, um, for the Joe blow golfers, the weekend hacks, when we show up to the range, cause a lot of us do yeah. uh, with, you know, 12 minutes, we only give ourselves 15 minutes. When we first get to that range, how should we loosen up our body and get ready for a round of golf? Well, I mean, you just got to get the juices flowing. You know, it's, it's, you can't believe how much time tour players spend getting, um, getting loosened up. You know, they're, they're all in the physio trailers, you know, on the treadmill, going through different sort of plyometric moves, uh, with medicine balls, uh, you know, it, you see Miguel Angel Jimenez on the range doing all those contortions. How can, how, how can you miss him? Right. But those are for show. Trust me. Because he, he has been in the physio trailer two hours, two and a half hours for his tea time. And that guy is out of his mind in the physio trailer, throwing medicine balls around, getting stretched out. And he's unbelievably flexible. So when he goes out of the range, loving, he's already limber. But – if you just did nothing else but some of the movements that Miguel Angel Jimenez does uh, on the range before you teed off, uh, loosen up your body, you know, uh, swinging a couple of clubs, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not really enough to sort of do these static stretches. 
You know, you got to do a little bit more than that. You know, a few jumping jacks, running in place. It may look funny, um, but your golf swing will be a little bit longer on the first tee, and you'll have uh, a little bit more pop in the back. Uh, you got to get the juices flowing, and then you got to get the nerves. So you got to hit some pitch shots. You know, uh, some little, you know, a little soft off the runners, and little couple of spinners, and a bunker shot or two, and then a couple of long putts. Um, you know, just just try to get the feel of the greens and then, uh, and then go to the first tee and let it go. Um, but you know, to go to the first tee and just, or to go to the range and just hit a few shots without warming your body up, um, doesn't do a whole lot of good. Well, you mentioned get a feel of the greens. I, I know that sounds, it sounds generic to some of us, right? And I know I talked to John Rama about this subject and he says the biggest key is understanding the speed of the greens. That's his biggest advice to amateur golfers feel comfortable with the speed before you get to the first tee. How, how do you, how do you do that in, in your perspective? I know, you know, if you budget a few minutes, what can we do to get the most comfortable? Yeah. I mean, just give yourself some 50 footers, 60 footers on the green, you know, I mean, it, it's easy to run over there and drop balls down about three feet from the hole, but um, you know, so that you feel the weight of the putter, you know, uh, make sure that your grip pressure is light, feel the weight of the putter and, and hit some 50, 60 footers you know, going two different directions. And then, you know, after that, yeah, sure. Put a few down two, three feet from the hole, hole out, you know, get, get a nice little bit of confidence there. But, uh, but you know, before I go play, I, I, you know, I love to hit, you know, some, some longish putts so that I can, you know, get a sense of where my nerves are. You're trying to match your body chemistry uh, with the lay of the land. I mean, at the highest level, that's exactly what they're doing. They're literally trying to match their nerves with the speed of the greens and then, then you know, make judgments accordingly. And uh, I think people at home can, can have some semblance of that. Yeah. And you, when you've been back on, on the PGA Tour Champions and have gotten back into your pre-round routine, is it usually, what, about an hour? Like, how, how, what does it look like? No, I, uh, I like to get there earlier than that. And, you know, I... I, I um, I like to make allowances for, you know, saying hi to people, talking to people, um, you know, getting out there, you know, there's even on the PGA tour champions, there's gallery and you got to sort of make your way through there and, and everybody talking to some people and get to the range and say hi to people and have some fun. And, you know, so I give myself an hour, 20 hour and a half. So I don't, I don't want to be rushed. And, uh, you know, I get to the range, I, you know, I've had, my wife did caddy for me a couple times this year, but, I had my old caddy from the PGA Tour come out and caddy for me. His name's Graham Quartz, um, who's had you know a lot of success in the game of golf with a lot of players, uh, winning uh, with a lot of players. But uh, you know, Graham's good. You know, I, I hit some pitch shots and then you know slowly work my way through the bag and then finish off with some more pitch shots and then go hit some chips and some bunker shots and then go to the putting green and like I said, you know, hit some long putts and then work my way around. Um, a hole from, you know, say three o'clock, you know, 12 o'clock, three o'clock, six o'clock, nine o'clock, just work my way around a hole so that I'm, you know, getting a sense of, you know, my reads and getting into my routine and then uh, go to the first tee and remind myself to try to have some fun. Hmm. All right. I'm wrapping up here. I, I, I won't take too much more of your time, but I did want to ask you a couple favorites and then one more player I wanted to ask you about. Okay. Um, your favorite spot in all of golf? Man, there's so many of them. You know, look, I'll say if I'm on the East Coast, 
uh, go to Cabot Links, uh, which is in Nova Scotia. My wife and I have an affinity for that place. If I'm on the West Coast, I don't know how you could beat if you're lucky enough to get on Southridge Point or Pebble Beach. Um, and then Hawaii, you know. Um, so, you know, if I'm working my way from Hawaii, anywhere in Hawaii, uh, McKenna, anywhere. <laughs> but anywhere in Hawaii, that's my wife and I's probably favorite space to travel to. Uh, Pebble Beach, Cabot Links, and then anywhere in Scotland. Um, you know, I could just go back and forth between those places the rest of my life and be happy as I can be. I really miss the Open Championship. Of all the major championships, I I enjoy going to the Open more than any of the others. You know, there's something about the Open that just gets to me. Uh, you know, the Claret Jug and the, you know the history going back to 1860 and the weather and the people and the golf courses, whether it's Lynx Course or Heathland or um, courses. And you know, my wife loves the game. You know, maybe she loves it more than I do. Um, <laughs> Possible, yeah. And we just have the best time, her and I, playing golf and working our way through, you know, the various little small towns and getting to Edinburgh. And we just we just have a ball over there. Really miss it this year. I'm looking forward to getting back there next year, hopefully. If you had to choose between Anthony Hopkins' role in Amistad and any of Denzel Washington's best roles, and there have been some darn good ones, Glory, Training Day, I mean, the list is, is – taller than me um what what movie or role really stands out yeah that's a that's a tough one you know i'm the man up in this piece you know that's one of the greatest clips ever from you know i i'm such a denzel washington fan but i i really i probably spend more time studying anthony hopkins as an actor and um you know the closing scene where he's arguing the case um for the slaves that were on the boat, Amistad, before the Supreme Court, which is a historical argument that John Quincy Adams made. And to see Anthony Hopkins bring that, those words, that role to life, uh, which is mesmerizing, the nuances. Uh, his, you know, from the time he starts the bit, it's about an 11 minute piece, 10 minute piece. You know, he, he takes a pill of some sort, he takes a drink of water, um, you know, he, he taps the the the, uh, the dais where the Supreme Court justices are sitting. He walks over to the uh, Declaration of Independence and said, "What are we going to do with this this inconvenient document? I have a, a modest suggestion." Tears it. You know, I mean, it just the the nuance and the skill that he brings. And uh, I think um, you know, in uh, Actor Studio, where uh, Lipton is interviewing him. I think it, it, it hit home with me when he was asked about, you know, how do you add those nuances? And, and again, it boils down to, and this certainly is true of my job and your job, but it boils down to preparation. Um, and he said, you know, you, you have to know the words so well, you have to know your script so well that you can't be thinking about what you're going to say next. And that's how you can relax and pause and add all those nuances. You know, the words, you just have to know them so well, you know, the, the, uh, the work that would go into him making a script his own and then adding all those layers to it. Uh, you know, I, I, I have a great appreciation for the stories that Hollywood can tell and, and the way those actors can bring them to life. Now I agree with you. Hopkins is really one of, one of the best the, your favorite non golf sporting event you've ever witnessed either in person or on television that you were just floored by. 
What really stands out? Well, I'm old enough to remember uh, Borg McEnroe, um, you know, and I'm also old enough to remember Agassi. Um, Sampras. And Boris Becker. Oh, Becker, okay, that one, yeah. Agassi didn't really care for Boris Becker. Um, I believe it was quarterfinals, 1992 Wimbledon. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a pretty big tennis fan. And, you know, um, I just I really miss Agassi. You know, I, I, I just really miss his style of play. Um, you know, I, I, I haven't had the chance to get the Wimbledon. Um, but, uh, you know, just watching those on TV, you know, I'm, I'm all in on on those, you know, I, you know, and, and, and watching Federer as he's aged and sort of recreated himself, um, you know, watching him win the French open when it was unlikely that he would. And then he gave his acceptance speech in Swedish, French, and English. And I, and I thought, you know, it's just amazing to see somebody as good as he is, but also with the social awareness that he has, um, and the class that he has, you know, I just uh, have great admiration for uh, Roger Federer, not just as a tennis player, but as a, as a person. You know, I, I, yeah, me growing up watching Federer, Nadal, and, and Djokovic really uh, in the last 15 years has been pretty special. I, a heck of a time to be a tennis fan. Yeah, and, and the fact that Federer still, still has a chance in some of these Grand Slam events is, is so impressive. Um, Another event, though, that I just thought of, um, I remember um, coming home and watching um, Sayri Pak and Jenny Sashir form the 1998 U.S. Open, I believe it was. I remember um, just you know, watching every second of that. I couldn't have been more connected to that event. Uh, you know, just Jenny Sashir form had such an ambulance about her, you know, just, just I mean, you talk about being a cameraman's dream. I mean, she just lit that screen up. And then the golf swing that Sayri Pak had, and you know, you could make an argument that that, that US Open um, changed the game of golf, the women's game of golf, as much or more than Tiger has changed uh, the men's game of golf. So, you know, uh, on the ladies uh, side of, of golf, that was, that was certainly one of the more memorable events I've ever watched. Big, big historical moment for the women's game. Um, one player I wanted to ask you about, we hadn't gotten to yet. You had mentioned him briefly, Brooks Kepka. Um, right now with, as we're seeing with the knee, a lot of uncertainty, but what, what is the outlook here? Cause I know that he's going to technically be defending at Harding park uh, for the PGA championship, but, but what's your overall outlook on what we're going to expect from, from Brooks Kepka? Yeah, it's hard to say, you know, after, uh, I think it was the third round. He was asked about sort of hobbling out of a bunker. Um, and he said that, you know, his knee's not gotten any better and that it's really hard for him to commit to shots, uphill shots, because it hurts so much. And, uh, you know, he made it sound like, you know, that was it. It was done. That There was no alternative other than just dealing with pain. And if that's the case, um, you know, it's going to be really hard for him to compete because, you know, he, he's got he's to clear and extend so hard to hold off the face, you know, which, which he did beautifully. You know, you think about it. You know, he won four out of eight majors that he played in. Here's, here, here are the players that have done that. Hogan did that. Nicholas did that. 
I'm sorry, Hogan did that. Watson did that. And, and Tiger did that. I believe that's the correct order. But, but I mean, he's in rare company. Um, absolutely in rare company. Uh, so a, a colossal talent and hobbled to some extent uh, at, at the, in the prime of his career. So again, this is why, you know, I, I look askance at the, the zealous workouts that these guys are doing, throwing heavy weight around in the gym. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I know they look good, but does it really serve them long-term? And to be injured at such an early age in his life, um, you know, it'd be a shame if he couldn't get that knee uh, back 100% healthy so he could go back to playing the kind of golf that we're used to seeing him play. Yeah, he has been a force the last two, three years, of course, uh, winning four majors. Randall, really enjoyed uh, spending some more time with you. Of course, Thank golf channel analyst. Yep. And uh, look forward to catching up again down the road. You bet. Be my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. All right, my thanks to Brandel Chambly for coming on the pod this week. Pretty insightful interview. I liked what he had to say about the players. Of course, we talked really about some of the, the big usual suspects and how they're going to look at the in the majors this year. And uh, obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty with Brooks. But interesting to hear what he said about John Rahm versus Justin Thomas and Bryson DeChambeau. JT, in Brandel's opinion, would be the player that would end up with the most majors based on a longer swing and what Justin brings to the table. So, hey, you got to have an opinion in this game. And, of course, Brandel's never short of that. So good to hear that. Good to hear some insight on Rory's game and Tiger and Tiger's chances in the majors and Tiger's ceiling for winning majors. How many he's got left? One left, according to Brandel. I, I, that's interesting. I think a lot of people would disagree with that. <laughs> I don't know uh, what you think, but it's good to hear where he's coming from. So anyway, my thanks to Brandel. Enjoyed the pod for this week. Hope you liked it. And, of course, you can follow Beyond the Clubhouse on Twitter, at Beyond Clubhouse. And, of course, I'm on Twitter, at Johnston Garrett. And look forward to another really good episode coming up here soon. Keep the questions coming on Twitter. Always enjoy the interaction. And uh, look forward to catching up again soon on Beyond the Clubhouse.